0: Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. I've got an extra special guest today. He started his career in a family property investment business and then set up a consultancy with his brother, advising multi-billion pound property organisations. He then decided to utilise his Oxbridge Master's degree in engineering to set up a property data platform, which we know today as Nimbus Maps. So welcome, Paul Davis. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, everyone. Thank you very much for having me. Um, So, Paul, I guess if we start kind of towards the beginning I know your father was a property lawyer and started a property investment business yeah. which you joined was it always your intention to go into that business did you have any kind of careers
0: before joining it and what made you join it yeah no well, good question really so think it's kind of interesting because I think when you kind of when you look back on on time you sort of we do a lot of work with lots of training companies and sort of watch people, I suppose, walking the path my father walks. Yep. I sort of have a lot more... It's when you look at your, your, your parents, you don't necessarily look at them in the same way as you look at other people. And I have a lot of respect for the, the stuff that people are doing and and actually kind of now looking back at it, I, my dad as well, actually. So it's kind of, it's quite nice, really. But the sort of the honest answer is no, it wasn't that at all. I was doing engineering at university and, and, and had no particular plans to go into property or anything like that. We just had... I suppose the opportunity when I finished university, I've got nothing else particularly lined up, and thought and and my brother had actually started with my with the family business sort of three years before, and sort of found lot an opportunity in it. and was saying, oh, you, you should come check this out; it's kind of really interesting and stuff. And so I sort of thought, well, I'll give it a go and see how I get on, and then stayed there for, for for quite a while, really. So yeah, there was no kind of particular particular life plan that was going to drive me into property. It sort of I sort of fell into it at the end of it, uh, an Oxbridge engineering degree, really. So, and what kind of property investment? Was the company doing at the time, and was it a company, or was it kind of yeah yeah yeah? How, how was it structured? It was kind of interesting. So, so his his model to start with was was high yielding assets, which is a very nice way of saying just buying grotty stuff basically. And so he was he was sort of buying tired industrial buildings, often overdrafts, and and so that so the model was you know buy some grotty sheds for fifteen percent yield or something, yep. borrow a bit of debt at five percent and make quite a nice return thanks very much and sort of use the the cash you're throwing off to repay the 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 overdraft i suppose and then do it again and sort of when we when we started we sort of i guess it's not very glamorous is it buying it's more glamorous now than it was back then so this is kind of, you know, 2000, now, yeah. now those grotty sheds are pretty pretty hot and sexy, which is quite bizarre. It sort of takes yeah. a pretty, pretty head around ring doesn't it? beds and sheds are very kind of on trend at the moment, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. So, so I suppose they, and I, I guess you don't get 15% yield out of them anymore, but so that was kind of what what we sort of started with. And sort of when we when we kind of then started thinking about it, we actually felt that that was fine from an income point of view, but there was kind of more to be done with capital values. And actually, if you you started trading the capital values and started doing clever things with asset management as you can make much better returns. As we started buying some better stuff and and that sort of moved us into at the time kind of retail, which again is how the world changed. We did quite a lot of quite a lot of retail work and sort of particularly sort of district shopping centers and things we did very well with. And, and that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you mentioned
1: kind of how industrial was was at the 15% kind of yield range, whereas now, I mean, you're lucky if you can get anything kind of over 5% or yeah. under 5% even. And it just goes to show kind of how cycles come about, because I don't know, back then in, in 2000, most kind of property portfolios or real estate portfolios were based as kind of the, you've got the retail And office well, mostly retail actually being the bond-like element of a of a portfolio. So being a very stable income source. And your industrial would have been seen much more as a very alternative, a bit more kind of shot in the dark route, a bit more risky. And your offices were a bit more cyclical, whereas now it's really turned on its head, and retail is that far more risky asset that's high yielding and industrial is, is almost your core industrial and, and residential really is, is starting to be more of a core kind of fixed income asset in, in, a, in, a, in a real estate portfolio sorry
0: absolutely i think kind of it's it's sort of kind of kind of show my age man, i don't know but sort of the you see those those swings kind of happen and so i've been in property now for about 20 years and and i've sort of seen those swings happen so when we were first starting out it was considered where we were to be buying flats and converting into offices mm-hmm. so the residential values were just just kind of low enough that you could kind of convert them into offices oh. for the right for the right building in the right place and obviously that then swung to offices to resi and it's kind of interesting so you sort of you sort of see that that sort of swing happening and it's kind of this there's parts of the country now where you sort of find places like central manchester where where that sort of swing works again so the office space in central manchester certainly until sort of pre-covid was was kind of more valuable than the resi that were around it and stuff so so well, it's kind of, you sort of see those swings kind of happen all over the place. And I guess retail will come back as well and there'll be a, a, a repositioning of it and it'll it'll come back, I suspect. But, um,
1: absolutely. And it's it's interesting kind of what you mentioned about the, going on to the capital values and understanding that there's more to be done, more return to be made. You, you use the term better, which is always super subjective, but I agree with you. I mean, it's it's how can you get kind of a more efficient return, really, over a period of time, and certainly when you start playing around with kind of asset management on capital values and securitizing income streams and, and things like that, you can start to trade what essentially is a is a bond-like asset, it's a fixed income asset. You can start
0: seeing some really really interesting interesting returns. I found that so- kind of super easy actually in, in the retail space. I found that super easy. You know, kind of it was sort of the model at, at that time was you buy a, a parade of six seven shops on a on a you know high, on a little district centre. You relet one of them to one of the nationals who will pay you twenty five percent more than the rent on along the, the retail, and you use that as your corporate oh. evidence that rent review to, and you suddenly you stick twenty five percent of the capital value of the building you've you paid you remortgage it, and that's your equity, and you get your money back, and it's absolutely it like it's just a paper it's a piece of paperwork. It's like yeah. super easy. Absolutely. So we did quite a lot of that. That was kind of certainly a, a model that we had really.
1: And how do you think then that kind of a property investment business back then? 20 odd years ago how how is it different now for property investment
0: businesses so it was kind of interesting that so so I think I think the access to information and and I would say that you know we're a technology company sort of providing information I think the access to information was was a lot harder to get your hands on so and and that then meant that you were very heavily reliant agents so you know we had an action strategy and we were sort of you know, so, so in effect, we were doing all these strategies to, to increase the value of the buildings we've got. We were refinancing those, drawing more capital out and then using that to the deposit for the for the acquisition strategy in effect. So we were doing quite a lot of that, but the, the challenge was where do you find decent stock? And so it was agents. So it was lots of golf and it relationships. Were, yeah, you know, you know, it's kind of all of that. And sort of off market was agents and, you know, and that might be coming to the market soon as off market. It's kind of, it's not really off market, is it? And, and the agent's kind of sending it to three or four people at the same time. So it's, it's sort of off market, but it's not. And it's kind of, it's, it's very unscalable. And there's always a middleman sort of within that. And I think the difference now is that I think you can be much more in control of that. You can be much more in control. You can you can also, so we, we tried very hard to to sort of, Tried to break down what it was we found we could make money out of so it was we had a spell of doing sort of shops and uppers again so class g sort of stuff yeah yeah before it was kind of cool before class g came out and we were doing it kind of to hmo sort of pre lets to the universities and stuff and so we did so we sort of realized actually we could there was kind of in our kind of local towns there's quite a lot of upper space that wasn't being used in some prime locations we like the retail space so we'd kind of buy that so we'd, we'd buy those assets and then sort of you know trade the upper parts or or reposition them or whatever and, and so but the challenge was well, where do you find more of that stuff and and sort of even try and understand what the address of those property was was quite hard and then you've got to go into the lamry street to go and download type of register and and the whole kind of process of well i'm going to let a campaign the this street and see if anyone wants to sell it it wasn't a thing that anyone did yeah you, know, you pick the phone up to the local agent say do you know anybody who wants to sell something and they go no and you go oh, well it's that strategy then isn't it yeah. yeah i think sort of the, the the ability to really focus in on particular strategies now is something that's very different from what it was before.
1: And would you then, on on the other side of the coin then, would you say that there was more barrier to entry so that once you found a good thing, you could keep it going for longer before I mean, all the competition yeah. flooded in as well? Yeah,
0: yeah. And, and sort of, and the, I mean, I, I've done webinars on this before where sort of the, we thought we were very clever. So we, we thought that sort of back in 2000, 2005 or whatever, you know, buying retail units, covering the upper parts off, you know, regearing the ground floor lease to Tenants tenantal upper parts anyway, flipping that into student accommodation, renting that to Warwick University in kind of the town. So like it was it was a license to print money, frankly. Yeah. It was cold Goose. it was kind of it was dead easy. And you think, well, gosh, aren't we clever, we've sort of stumbled on this thing. And then when you sort of when you look at it in a in a much more clear way with like like our tool, you can you can do it with that, you can see oh isn't that obvious like there's there's tons of HMOs around it and we were just putting it to HMO and then letting it and it's like so and there's kind of a planning history for that so if you knew where we were looking you probably could have unpicked it back then but it'd be quite hard to find it I think it's it's so that sort of openness of the marketplace is it's much more open now than it ever was sort of seeing what others are up to and seeing kind of where those trends are and kind of where you should be sort of following if you like I'm a kind of big believer that you're never the first one into a marketplace you're never the first one to do something in a marketplace yeah. there's obviously somebody that is but kind of it's it's never me and it kind of very rarely you know and so so actually you can sort of see where those things are happening mm-hmm. and you don't want to be the first one anyway particularly because you're kind of you're, you're proving the marketplace you've got all the uncertainty yeah, in the well, you've got to prove the concept costs a lot of money <laughs> and time and effort yeah absolutely so,
1: and, so, well, and so after that whether you're kind of you were in the property investment family business. And you then started to set up this consultancy with your brother, advising kind of more blue chip clients on their real estate. How, yeah. how did
0: that all come about? What, what kind of drone? Well, similar sort of thing again, really. So, so we were, we'd got a, a particular pair of shops, sort of regional, so Burbage, a so little, little kind of town outside Hinckley in, in the Midlands, sort of neat an and kind of way. And we got a pair of shops, we got a little convenience store on it, six, ten shops kind of around, it's like six each side of it kind of thing. Thousand square feet. Saintpiece turned up and said, "Oh, we'd like to be, get on your site." And we're like, "Well, we could get you maybe two thousand feet." And they're like, "We need, we need four thousand feet." And we're like, "Not mm, sure we're gonna, we can manage that." So we sort of wrote to some of the other owners around the around the site, and there was a kind of a car garage right up to them, kind of got a bit close, but again, kind of what was in the ground, and the price they wanted didn't kind of work. Mm-hmm. But we hit the the pub company, one of the pub companies. So we hit Punch Taverns at that time. They got kind of third of an acre, two thirds of an acre, sorry, third of an acre, half an acre kind of thing over the road, with a pub in the middle of it we could put it on there and it's already got a 4,000 foot footprint on it. It's like, well, why don't we just sort of put it in there? Thanks very much. And so we got restricted covenant over the site. So we sort of managed to, to sort of joint venture it with them where we'd released the joint, the, the covenant and then yep. built it out for, but we kind of went out to some other, other people, also it was Sainsbury's that kind of alerted us to it, but then we ended up kind of doing it to a, one of the regional co-ops. So we built that kind of that property out. And of course, th- the time you kind of cash went back to 2008, credit crunch, smoking ban, sort of the pub companies to be sort of booming through
1: yeah that point. and now and, was time for the coffee shops and hairdressers to kind of get their thing on the on, on, the, on the high street i guess wasn't it
0: absolutely absolutely yeah. So, yeah. so we kind of hit them at the right time and they were sort of they'd had these sort of struggling these times they were struggling and they were kind of re they were sort of looking at their assets and saying well actually if we sell if we sell a chunk of them we can restructure our balance sheet we can then be profitable and kind of it will work but they were kind of fire selling and so we we're like well why don't you just kind of slow down on some of these and we can reposition them. we can sweat the assets for you. And so, so we did a sort of a spell of that. And, and, and what was kind of interesting is that as we were kind of, so, so I suppose, if you sort of cast your mind back, you've got an A4 as was planning use class, Yeah. Healy writes down to A1. So you kind of, your convenience stores kind of work well. Thanks very much. Typically in the chimney pots sitting a bit of residential, you know, sometimes a bit of care, this sort of stuff that kind of work on it. So you sort of sit there going, well, what could I use this building for? And then at the same time, all the occupiers are sort of saying to you, well, I want this many people in this, many. you know, kind of this how I'm going to appraise it when I come to do my convenience on it. And so, so we ended up sort of then saying, well, we need to kind of be able to run those appraisals in the background to know yeah. which ones work, which ones don't, because our clients say, well, here's 6,000 pubs, kind of what in there works? And you're like, well, I can't really drive all that stuff. And so, so <laughs> sort of, we ended up in effect answering that question using data, basically was the, was the and, of- and that's great, isn't it? When when clients can give
1: you that kind of shopping list so you can work out what your gdv is what the rents they'll pay what the kind of initial yield is that that you can go then you can go right it's almost like a forward sales model and you can go and understand exactly what your end end cost is which is great and put it into practice and then go and line up those deals Mm -hmm. i guess the only problem with that At the moment, what we're seeing anyway is there's a big kind of trend going into supported living at the moment, social housing, and lots of people are 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 trying to get these kind of FRI leases, fixed kind of income over a certain period of years. Now, it's all well and good until you hit an inflationary period where suddenly actually your your end kind of value is fixed on a a rent that might be fixed for five or ten years, the rest of the market shooting up with inflation at I don't know double digits every year, mm-hmm. and you're left behind. But your costs have also gone up. So I think okay. yeah, it it just goes to show that in certain different in market environments, it can work really really well, but it can also work against you. So yeah, as long as, yeah, as long yeah.
0: those rents go up with inflation and market price, then then yeah, well, it's all good. Yeah, I'm sort of a big believer of I mean, if that's where the marketplace is, is that you back to back that into your deal. You just bake it into the into the, the structure of the deal, and so rather than buying stuff subject to, you buy it under option and you can't explain sort of what those issues are or you bake in those those movements in price and you go more open book with it. Yeah. And so it, I think it's kind of, and I think that's kind of where today's market is different from, from previously because previously you'd worked so hard to unearth a deal that it's very hard to drop it. And we certainly found that, you know, you, you sort of, you do you do deals that you think, well, I probably shouldn't have done that and actually I didn't really make the return out of that that I should have done because you get so emotionally attached to it. And I'll sell it for a bit more or I'll kind of, you know, not just emotionally
1: out. attached. it's You're probably a bit financially attached because even, I don't know, even yeah. if you're an option for a pound, you're still spending money on legal fees and various other things as well, aren't you? So it,
0: it can that, be. That was kind of where we, we I, so where I found it very hard is that you sort of, you, you've spent three months of your life trying to unlock this deal. And then you do the, you kind of think, well, And I think you kind of you get to that point of someone wants to go sign a dotted line and and some deals kind of diverge and some deal and kind of stuff that comes out of woodwork you weren't expecting and it's but others that kind of converge and and things get ticked off and the the, the, the sort of the the list of worries shrinks down and suddenly those are the ones that we found we made money out of and the ones that sort of diverge were the ones we suddenly thought Two years later going, Oh, why did we do that for? It's just a mistake,
1: really. So, we've all we've all done it. I mean, that, that's just reminded me of a conversation I had with a I think it was a planning consultant actually on a on a site that we did where he was kind of his fees were going up as they do, and I was kind of pushing back on the fee. And and I remember him saying something along the lines of, well, we feel it's commensurate with the reward that you will get once you get planning. And <laughs> I just thought, oh, so I just said so you want to benefit from the upside without exposing yourself to any of the risk. Absolutely. Like, yeah, of course you do. <laughs> well yeah. I kind of put it like that back to you. I see your point, but
0: <laughs> yeah, said, yeah. well,
1: how about we you pay, I pay 10% of your fee and I'll pay double when we get planning.
0: That's more like it. That's okay. more like it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think I think people forget that when you go into those scenarios, you're taking on risk, and and look, there's there's reward. Hopefully, or there's the opportunity of getting reward, but it doesn't always come off that way. And no, at all. yeah, you have got to be in it to win it, but you can also come out a bit worse off every now and again. Absolutely. Um, so I guess, like, what was some? Of, can you give us a? You, you spoke about the initial kind of four thousand square foot with it. I think it was Saint's. Mm-hmm. Have yeah. you got any other kind of uh, examples of the type of work that you would do to help those those clients?
0: Yeah, yeah. So so that sort of that model kind of continued. Really. So so in essence, what what we had was sort of big landowners that had got these problems where at a macro scale, you know, people aren't going to the pub to drink anymore because they can't smoke in the pub when smoking ban hit. And at the same time, you know, we've got credit crensions, we've got less money in our back pockets, so not I to go to the pub and smoke anymore and drink and can't do the kind of stuff we used to do. And so on the one hand, you've got a portfolio of 6,000 pubs, don't to do with them, going to sell a bunch of them because i need to to restructure my balance sheet because i'm kind of i've overexpanded and and on the other hand you've got a list of occupiers saying i want these sorts of properties and it was typically convenience convenience retail so it was a tesco sainsbury's co-ops great you know. anchors that you want now isn't it absolutely yeah. you know and and so so and they were saying well you know in order for a site to work we need two thousand people in 500 meters we need Quarter of an acre. Well, they were saying that was so many four thousand feet, and so what does four thousand equate? Four thousand square feet equate to with twelve parking spaces, and and so so we realized that there was a bunch of things we had to kind of check on the site to work out whether it worked or not. Mm-hmm. And so, so we ran data against it to say, here you go. Obviously, to six thousand. These three hundred have got the right kind of characteristics for a convenience store, and then we sort of look at each one and go, yes, I think so. No, I don't. This was too remote. You know, and that sort of stuff. That's on the back street or whatever. And so we sort of did all of that. And then we, so in effect, we then kind of created this, this sort of system where we could sort of send out these sites very quickly, get the retailers to come back and say, as I like them and this sort of stuff. And so a bit like a dating website for property. It was kind of yeah. was like swipe left, swipe right for the retailer kind of thing. <laughs> and so we, we sort of set that up and then and that then worked really well. So, so we, we did an awful lot of convenience stores, about 100, 100 convenience stores over about a sort of a, a three or four, sort of four, four or five year period. So we were kind of getting, getting a consent sort of in our in our kind of heyday, sort of a consent a week for for a convenience store in effect. Mm-hmm. So yeah. maybe maybe every fortnight, but it's kind of it was we were getting quite a lot of them through, and and those were typically pre-let to to those kind of big big companies, and that then kind of got them kind of interested. So we then got retained by saying can co-op to go and find more stuff. You know, you you found me a site over here and built it out, and and kind of once they've got a developer they know can kind of deliver something out, they they sort of want more from them. So you just kind of do more and more basically. So. a lot of convenience stores we did about 250 residential schemes off the back of that and again they were quite quite simple really because it's like i've got a three-quarter an acre of of a pub and most of the time a third of an acre so i'll put 0.4 of an acre i'll put four or five houses on it on the end of the car park thanks very much and if the values are high enough then it's kind of easy enough you you have a bit of a a battle with the local residents to say i don't drink in the pub anyway but if it's got no parking they certainly won't and you're like well if you actually went and used it we wouldn't have the same conversation but yeah. So we sort of went through all of that and, and delivered all that sort of stuff out. And and we sort of then realised sort of along the way, we, we had this kind of this kind of interesting conversation, really. So so there were sort of, I suppose, two interesting conversations that we had. The first one, we, we had this, this piece of work where where Spirit Pub Company had, had asked us to do a piece of work to, they'd done some demographic profiling, saying we want to buy some new, some new pub sites. And we, so in effect, we worked out a way of measuring the, si- the size of the pub Based on the the name and address of it, so there was kind of some linking and stuff like that in the background. But in yep. effect, here's a list of six, seven thousand pubs we want to go and but we might want to go and buy. Tell us how big they are. So we kind of developed this, this way of doing that. That then we could say, well, these are the ones that are big enough, so forget the other ones and go and target those. Yeah. And as part of the presen- presentation back, we we plotted the title on the map, so we could then sort of show them, well, here's the site, and you know, sort of on Google Maps and stuff. And so we it sort of blew our minds that you could see a title plan on the map and. We were kind of very used to that idea of, I don't even back in the day, you know, you'd sort of, you'd have a a plan from the from the lawyers, and you sort of then have the, the site plan. You sort of put them yeah. together, you sort of try and work out well which bit of a, and of course you've got this kind of digitally on your computer, and we had it on our phone and stuff. And we were like, it just blew our mind that you sort of could have this stuff plotted over. And go, oh, there's, there's the right way. That's a problem, and there's that you know, just like yeah. blew our mind really. And we put it in front of one of the occupiers in a sort of in the. In the evening after one of the property dues and he'd had a few a few to drink, and he was, he just didn't understand what we were showing him. It was like, look, it's, it's a phone with Google Maps. There's a you know there's a the title <laughs> button. Like, Look at it, look at it. And he was like, what what am i looking at, guys? It was one of our <laughs> kind of one of our one of our major clients. It was quite quite bizarre. But in the same kind of conversation, we'd got one of the action surveyors that we'd been working for, and we're sort of saying, well, look, here's some sites we found. What do you think? And we'd use the same technology. We'd sort of you know, here's the site, sort of plotted on the map and stuff. And he was like science kind of mission. what's this bit of what's this bit of technology can we use it and we were sort of like no you can't it's it's kind of <laughs> art. Um, and, and then we sort of realized well, actually we probably ought to let them use it and so we sort of we agreed for them to you know to, to to license it off us and we suddenly found we'd sold a bunch of licenses without even kind of trying because our kind of existing customer base were kind of just keen to use it and found it really useful and we're like maybe we should do more of this maybe we should sort of put some more and they were kind of saying well, could you put this stuff in and put that stuff in and well well, yeah we can so we sort of did and you know and it's more important to buy and so we well it's kind of interesting and so did more of it really so hence and um and
1: kind of so i guess your first market there was really those those kind of blue chip corporations at what point did you think actually there's a there's a much bigger market out there you've got i don't know your house builders and you i know you're targeting a lot of sme developers as well at the moment what what, what kind of made you think of those those markets too
0: well so so we've done quite a lot of residential development ourselves so we'd you know we'd done 250 planning schemes you know so we'd sort of and and we'd sold quite a lot of those sites to those developers and those developers then were sort of coming in and seeing us so wants more and this sort of stuff and so I thought of this and again what's that bit of technology you're using kind of thing and can we use it so so it's kind of the same evolution really that we were just sort of doing up kind of say we're scratching our own really. we're sort of we've we got this this tool that we were using ourselves and it was a difficult conversation actually it was sort of you know so, so you've got this kind of tool that's kind of your unique selling point as, a, as an agency business and as a development management business and then you're sort of saying well do i release that to the marketplace that i'm competing with and and we realized we had to because somebody else would and that actually we shouldn't be competing in that marketplace okay. as well because with that us with that tool yeah wasn't really fair and that it, it sort of I mean that would limit the ability for us to you know to 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 kind of sell that tool and support the marketplace we want to support. And so it was quite a difficult decision to make, but we we did make it and and I stuck to it. There's
1: there's a really great phrase, and I, oh, I can't really remember the whole of it, but it's I think it was like it was Steve Jobs I think from Apple when they released kind of a load of the the stuff kind of from, going from iPod to iPhone, and just said look let's just have all the all the software on the iPhone for a lower price. And it was kind of the idea was about if we keep up these barriers, someone else is just going to come in and do it. So actually, if we open this up, we've, we're already ahead of the game. I'll have to try and find the quote.
0: <laughs> but yeah, was, I mean, that was, that was kind of it. We were like, we, we, we thought that if we, if we, if we try to keep it to ourselves and try to keep it as a, as a USP, that somebody will come and do it yeah. in a way that will generate more revenue, just focusing purely on that. We were sort of it was on the side of our desk at the time. And We thought, well, if we if we continue to do that, someone else, it's a it's a great concept, it worked beautifully. It's someone else will come and do it, and 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 ultimately they'll be able to invest much more heavily in it than we can. I, mean, I had a had a conversation with a client who is uses our system who actually did it themselves in a similar sort of way, a similar sort of time, but they kept it in-house. And it was very interesting, sort of, sort of where they could get their their stuff to versus where we've got to. I bet, uh, yeah. And that's so that was kind of quite an interesting. I've had sort of one or two conversations like that where sort of tried to assume a similar sort of thing and not quite got there with it, and so it's kind of interesting.
1: Hello, everyone. I, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to talk to you quickly about a sponsor of ours called Signature Property Finance. They are a bridging loan provider based in Solihull, Birmingham. The company also has regional offices in Cardiff and Edinburgh, which enable them to serve clients across the whole of England, Wales, and Scotland. They were established in 2012. And Signature have two primary funding lines, private equity and a traditional debt facility via a high street bank. So what is it they fund and how can they help you? Well, Signature will lend against both residential and commercial property on a standard bridge with a maximum loan-to-value of 70% and 60% respectively for a term of between 6 and 18 months. They offer both a light and heavy refurbishment product, again for a term of up to 18 months. Light refurbishment amounts to anything non-structural in nature, whereas anything involving structural changes requires a heavy refurbishment product. They will lend up to 75% of the lower of the purchase price or day one open market value. Signature also lend development finance up to a maximum loan of 5 million and for up to 15 units. The loan terms are up to 24 months and cover residential or mixed use developments, and they will lend up to the lower of 65% of the GDV or 80% of total costs. So why would you use them? Well, in in the words of CEO Tony Gilbertson, Signature, do what they say they're going to do. Provided the information given by the customer and or the broker on day one is accurate, the terms issued on day one will be the same terms that the customer draws down on. So if you've got any property finance requirements, please contact Tony Gilbertson at Tony, T-O-N-Y at signaturepropertyfinance.co.uk and there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And for a limited time only, they are doing a special offer for all RODcast listeners. If you look to get finance with them and mention the RODcast, you will get free legals for a limited time only. Yes, that's right. That's free legals for a limited time only. Just mentioned the Rodcast. They really are a fantastic company that do what they say they're going to do and act quickly. Back to the show. And and kind of going back to working with some of those larger kind of blue chip companies, how, how did working with those bigger asset values kind of differ from what you were used to in your family property investment business?
0: Well, it was very interesting, really, because the I think that's where we saw the opportunity, really, was that the asset values themselves weren't very big. So, you know, a good pub might be worth two or 3 million. Yeah. But the majority of them are worth, you know, 200,000 to 500,000, which was very much, you know, we typically invested at 500,000 to 5 million. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of, that was our kind of marketplace. And this sort of stuff sat very much in the middle of that. The difference was that they had thousands of these things. And so the portfolio was massive, mm. just a very small fiddly assets. And that, I think, was kind of interesting because it was a particular problem that we were solving. It was kind of because it was such a such a lot of small fiddly assets. Nobody wants to know. Yeah. And and because there's so much of it, any kind of any sort of work you want to do on that size of portfolio costs a fortune.
1: Yeah.
0: frictional <laughs> costs will just make up like. So that- kind of just reduce the return so far yeah absolutely but, you know if you think about i want to do a thousand pound report on six thousand pubs it's six million quid yeah, yeah. and it takes a lot of signing off that to to spend that kind of money and so so it was it was a kind of particular problem that that meant we were sort of facing this problem of scale and how do you and how do you do that and that's kind of where so how, how can you provide that service without doing the service with the problem that we had it's like you know if I want to write valuation report? It costs a thousand pounds to go and do it, You've got six thousand pubs. Should I send you a bill for six million now, or do you want to pay half now an and half on, on completion? They, like they, they weren't interested, you know. <laughs> I'll pay you 50 quid if you're lucky, but I won't pay you, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. So how do you how do you get that level of insight? And this is kind of where the where the automation has to come in.
1: And what were what were the kind of pros and cons of working with some of those blue chip clients with massive balance sheets then? And... So the the
0: cons were the same as any, as any property business. So it's, you know, you're paid on success. You're not paid, you're paid handsomely on success, but you've got to be successful. Yeah. And some of those decisions that can be made can, you know, turn on a, on a hat and, you know, strategies can change and this sort of stuff. And you can be going in one direction and your fee, your, your fee income can change off the back of some of those decisions that are taken or, you know, things are completely out of control. So some of that stuff was, was challenging. I think the the benefits were were huge though. So that the benefits around being super clear what what their problems are and then being completely clear with that and funding and and that sort of stuff was 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 very helpful. I think the benefits sort of along the way were also around having them behind you and having the weight of them behind you. So we sort of some of the problems you have around trying to deliver convenience stores were around. How do I get in touch with the the you know the agent or the action surveyor? They're very difficult to get a hold of, but that we had them on speed dial. They would always answer your phone and they would always return your call, and and they would even reply to the emails that were automated out of our system because there'd been a sort of level of trust that was that was there. That actually, and I think this was kind of interesting. So the level of trust they had in the systems and the processes we were putting in place meant they would reply to our automated messaging my brother, we used to send it out my brother's name and and he was kind of known as kind of Kaiser Soze. It was this kind of guy you'd never met before, but he was kind of always in your life kind of thing <laughs> because he was always sending these emails and stuff because it was, click a button in the system, it send out 40 emails, you know, about this particular building we'd just been reviewing or whatever. And so we became Kaiser Soze. It was, it was And I think that validated it for us really, is that we, we got these, these big retailers that you couldn't get in touch with, sort of logging into this system that we'd created to kind of look at sites we'd automatically sort of check through algorithms and yeah. and then sort of spun spun kind of work out the back of it for us to, to go and close out with big, with big clients so it was, it was very interesting it was kind of a, a cool thing to, to try and to try and do really
1: absolutely you mentioned your brother there so what's it been like working with family and what advice would you give to people who are considering or, or even people that are already in business with family members that are maybe concerned they might fall out with each other
0: so i think the the key i think we've had sort of two two halves of that so we had the half where sort the first half of that where we were working with with parents different generation and i think that's difficult because i think the you know naturally when you sort of put your mind in the in the mind of a 60 70 year old or something like that you know their aspirations around growth and around what they're trying to achieve with their lives and stuff is very different.
1: Absolutely. They're mm-hmm. kind of hitting that retirement phase where they want secure security, kind of t- to do the things that they want to do in life and and, and kind of I, I guess kind of all, all all those things that come with retirement. Whereas if funny, younger, absolutely building a
0: family, absolutely ability <laughs>
1: to take on more risk, got more energy, all that sort of stuff. Yeah.
0: So I think I think it sort of the advice boils down to sort of advice you'd give to anybody i think in terms of it's making sure that you're that you're aligned and i think that's quite easy not to be aligned when you've got parents and different generations involved i think when you're siblings and you're kind of similar age similar mindset similar i think it's quite important you've got different skill sets Mm. and i think i think that it's important you've got different skill sets for the for the kind of the business to thrive but those different skill sets mean you have a difference of opinion (laughs) and those different opinions then need kind of resolving and and you kind of need to find that alignment and so I think you kind of I think you shouldn't be afraid of of the of the conflict that that creates, but you have to have confidence that the relationship is strong enough. that You'll get through it, and you'll kind of then create that alignment because the business needs it. Yeah, I think if those things can't happen, then then that's where I think family. So I think family businesses are great in many ways because you have you know an inbuilt level of trust that is is kind of second to none. Yeah, you can't very easily scale your bit your family though so sort of finding other people to work with if your family's only as big as it is and they're not always necessarily the right people for your business so i, I think i think there's a there's a place for a family business but it, it's it has its sort of limitations and whether yeah. it's the whole family in is another question
1: and then you get on the first problem whereas if you i don't know have kids and you want them to have the business then you've got that 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 first problem of generational kind of where, where you grind yeah yeah yeah
0: so I'm not, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that family businesses are easy as they, as they look and they sort of certainly have their sort of their points at which generations have very different opinions of what should happen next. And I, I think because it's so sort of baked into your personality and your life and your kind of, you know, where you are in your own life, I think it's very hard to find alignment in those, in those sort of situations. There are, there are ways of doing it, you know, there are kind of, but it needs to be sort of quite a, you know, you, you kind of want to be doing buyouts and and sort of having that, Sort of finance, you know, VCs involved in this sort of stuff to make that kind of work. I think the sort of, I think sort of family business otherwise can be quite tricky, really.
1: Absolutely, and kind of you, you see a lot of this, especially with kind of like family offices, almost is where you get the the generation that kind of built the wealth, and mm-hmm. and and there, and the next generation were kind of there to kind of see that struggle, but also benefit it, with the outcome, and then you get the next generation that were never there to kind of see all the hard work mm-hmm. that went into it, but have have managed to prosper off it and it's it's normally the third yeah. generation that a lot of these businesses they come they, they they fall down which is which is an interesting kind of point i guess
0: uh, totally totally And I, you kind of see why that would be the case and you sort of see you know that just because you're somebody's someone's child doesn't make you any good at what they do it's you know it's it's a it's a it's a fact isn't it and it and so so i, I think that and i think that probably also you know the third generation it plays a lot plays a lot of weight on them you know they they've suddenly inherited the the the, the reins of, of a big of a big business that's quite a thing to put on their shoulders and if they don't fully understand it as they they won't have had the same experiences that the the founders mm-hmm. and the parents had and that kind of savviness that comes through experience and stuff it's not their fault i think it's it's interesting for the for the senior generations to try to see what else they might be seeing that you're not seeing but that's quite hard if they've got the track record and they've you know it goes both ways doesn't it it's yeah it's, it's... So it's that's tricky. why I think the generational gap is is a, is a tricky one to, yeah. to it's a really, because I
1: think that's a really really good point actually I've never kind of I've never thought about the generational one mm. being being a bigger issue than maybe kind of siblings for example
0: I think siblings have a siblings are very natural it's a very natural thing to to sort of you know you you spend your childhood falling out with your sibling and making up and you know and and getting on with it don't you and so I don't think there's kind of it doesn't really like certainly for me and Simon if if we if we have different of opinions, we know it's not because we it's not because we don't like each other. It's because we just right, see yeah. them differently. Exactly. And, and there's probably something that we each seeing that is different, and and both of us are indeed considering to make the right decision. Which I guess is what you want, isn't it? Because you
1: want to kind of if if, if you if you're making a decision about something and you've got an opinion about something, you want to say, well, well, what's going to change my mind here? Change my mind for me. Evidence me that I'm wrong. And I, I think that's always a, a really interesting conversation.
0: But that's the, same, the same thing you'd say to any, you know, any sort of if you're if you're setting a business on your own and you're looking for a, a co-founder, you'd say the same thing, wouldn't you? It's like bring people with a different skill set from you, but make sure you can align yourself. So make sure that you kind of that they're OK being wrong and that they're prepared to listen to being wrong and that they're prepared to move their position if they are wrong. And equally, make sure you're prepared to do that, too. Otherwise, you're just going to lock horns and it's going to fall apart in 12, 18 months time. And what are you bad at that Simon's good at? organization <laughs> so so I'm disorganized and and I find it boring <laughs> it's the problem and I think kind of so I think there's an obligation on you to know yourself and yeah. to then know where you're weak and then to work on it but knowing you'll only get so far yeah. and, and don't and forget
1: see, your strengths because that's what you're there for exactly
0: and then focus on what you're good at rather than yeah. uh, I think you need to kind of focus on the stuff you're bad at and try to fix some of that stuff if it's important enough but yeah that's what you'd say I sort of I can be chaotic. I can I can think the next thing is way more important than the, than the previous things and and that sort of stuff. And uh, so so yes, that's what I'm about. at.
1: <laughs> so what when you scaled these businesses because there's been a few here,
0: mm-hmm.
1: what would you say has been the toughest part of scaling a business?
0: It's the early bit, isn't it? I was, I was saying to somebody yesterday. Sort of there was a there was a time in the scaling of the second one where like there was one particular week where everything fell apart and there was, it was like a, like a scene out of Rocky, you know, it was like when, when he's getting hit at the end and there's kind of this sweat flying out of one side and blood flying out the other way. And there was this kind of one week where there was sort of three of those hit at the same time and just sort of, and it, it, it's the same for every, every business. It's, it's, I think that's where I think you get comfort from is that sort of, if you can talk to other people that are going through the same thing, that, you know, it, it's just a thing. It's just thing you've got to go through. And it's kind of the same with every business really is it, there's always that sort of that painful moment where usually in the kind of the early stages where you're spending your own money to to get it going and you're sort of investing and, and this sort of stuff, sort of the, you're investing, but you have no idea what the, the return's going to be. You think the return is going to be there, but you don't know. And of course you're looking at other people that aren't doing that. And you know they're still skipping forward and you're going backwards because you're spending money out with no get. So I think that's all very, very difficult actually. They sort of, it's looking over the precipice, chewing glass. Something's what he said. It's like it's kind of something about that, isn't it? It's, it it is. It, that's the hardest bit, I think. Is, is uh, being, yeah, I think being
1: extreme class. highs and extreme lows is kind of what mm. <laughs> what, what, what running your own business is about. Um, get over one hurdle, and there's a there's a bigger one to follow.
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You just get you just get kind of better at sort of knowing it, and knowing yeah, you get dealing with it. With it. yeah, mm. yeah,
1: absolutely. Mm-hmm. And what do you see then? So now with Nimbus it's it's grown to to a pretty decent size you've got a large market kind of big audience there would you say you the biggest kind of audience is now for more res- residential developers is that is that the biggest audience or biggest clientele
0: you have i think it depends how you define it actually i guess it's it more
1: value wouldn't
0: it be? yeah it's exactly it's kind of i think there's there's it's a very big marketplace so both residential commercial marketplaces are, are huge in different ways with different different problems i think and i, I think it kind of boils back to what we said originally as well is that a building is a building and you know that cyclical nature of offices to resi resi to offices offices to resi again retail high sheds low yeah. sheds high retail low Kind location
1: because some things might work well in, I don't know,
0: Mayfair, but not so well in Aberdeen. And, Absolutely, and it just sort of and it ebbs and flows sort of through that through that time, really. So there's definitely a big residential market out there for us. Yes, there's I think there's a there's less bare land out there than it was before. I mean, there are bits. There's kind of you know, smaller bits so the smaller developments. So there's still all of that still still going there, but the sort of the edge of settlement-y settlementy. 3000 homes sort of stuff there's there's only so much of that that's, that's around so i think that the core market is is that sort of smaller smaller developments The, you know the, the sub-50 units kind of thing there's, there's a lot in, in that i think that i think needs a repositioning of, of, of building uses and it's kind of it's much more around the specific asset it's kind of in my head it's not land it's buildings and the buildings get repositioned or they get knocked down and something else goes on top of them so the land is part of the of the asset, it's not just the landed effect. So, and that's where,
1: and, and, and with those kind of clients, then what, what do you see as the biggest risk that those clients are facing at the moment, and and what might they want to do to mitigate those risks? Yeah, sure.
0: So I, I think there's, it's it's very interesting. I think the risks are also the opportunities at the moment. Yeah. So so the risks at the moment you know, is so you've got high inflation, so your your build cost might go up. You've got high inflation, so the value of your cash is going down you've got rising interest rates so the the cost of your debt is going up and you kind of want debt in place because you make more out of it if you you know put less cash in and make a make a higher return out of it so i think those are a kind of part of the assets. you know kind of what's happening with with the high street what's happening with with the office kind of where does that sit so you kind of you risk to, in your existing estate around around all of that but the opportunities also sit there as well so so the so for me, you know, the, the the rising, the inflation is burning my cash deposits, but it's also burning investors' cash deposits. So I want to scale my business and bring in external finance. Now's a great time to do it. Mm-hmm. The, the rising bill costs is a thing. And so why is that my problem rather than the, the vendor's problem? Mm-hmm. So why am I not tying that in with, with the purchases that I'm making? Why am I not you know sharing with the owner a slice of the upside as part of that so then of course within all of that you've then got all of these these buildings that i can very freely change the use of so i can you know a, a shop an industrial building and an office for me are three different things three different specs three different they're completely different different values different specifications different everything and yet they're the same they're the same they're all class e i can i can use a shed for a retail unit if i want to well, There's opportunity different. there,
1: isn't yeah. there? Yeah. And of
0: course, then all of that, I can shove into residential through class MA. I can, and, and so, so the opportunity is vast. The, I think the trick to it is is being super picky. So it's about it's about looking very wide at, at what you kind of look at. And that, I mean, that's kind of what this thing does, what Nimbus does is allow you to, to sort of, it kind of breaks back to what I was saying at the very start of, you know, the old investment business is, well, how do I scale this? How do I find these opportunities, end up buying stuff because I've only got a limited pool of stuff to look at. Today's marketplace, you can look at an awful lot. And a a good deal is still a good deal now, regardless of what happens going forward. It's still a good deal. And especially if you can make that the owner's problem, because the owner's sitting there looking at high inflation and COVID and what's the future of this building that I've got and how's that going to change and interest rates are going up and all the same problems that I've been talking about, they've got that pressure on them. So I can play on that. And I can be saying to them, well, I'm gonna pay a little bit less now, I guaranteed and I'll pay a little bit more if, if things play out the way they should do. And I can share that with risk because they're seeing, look at the same stuff that I'm looking at.
1: Absolutely, that's, I think that's such a key point is, is, is evidencing your kind of opinion on things and being able to go back to sort of the Nimbus platform and say, well, look, here is here's the evidence here, here's what's happening. Yep. And, and it, it just gives you a lot more sway in that kind of negotiation, doesn't
0: it? Well, it's just, it's just fact, isn't it? It's like, this this is the fact that we're, we're basing this on. And if you want me to kind of depart from the fact that's there, give me some jolly good reasons why. And, if, and sort of if you then go back <laughs> to the marketplace to replace me as the purchaser, they're going to look at the same stuff. They're going to say the same things back to you. So, you know, you can do that if you want to, but you'll waste three months of your life you won't get back you're in the same place you're in now. And it may be a worse position then than it is now because, because the world's going to play itself out. And so, so it's a very compelling argument to, to say, well, let's just kind of get on with it. And of course, with that weight of, of investors that are out there, I think, I think what's kind of interesting is that the, there's kind of a few things that have, have kind of kicked the economy, but I don't really see it as, maybe it's kind of come back and bite me, but I don't really see it as kind of core, fundamental, the economy shot. I sort of see it as a few things that have kind of happened that we've kind of had a backlash on that yeah. will then kind of swing back at some point yeah. reasonably quickly. And so it's kind of interesting time to be doing we're not sort of We're not sort of sitting there like we were with the credit crunch and saying, well, the banks have gone. They were all, which one's going bust next? And all of the banks have got kind of, you know, problems on the balance sheet, which they're going to have to kind of reap. And this is the size of it in these many billions. And and this sort of we're not in that place at the moment. There's plenty of money kicking around. It's just that, you know,
1: yeah. And isn't that the the interesting thing about kind of property is that it's illiquid, which means Mm -hmm. when there is volatility in the market like there is in droves right now, actually, because you've got a really illiquid asset, it becomes a bit more stable um, when you're benchmarking against all other kind of asset types. And I think people are always focused on talking about liquidity and its benefits, but they often forget the benefits of being illiquid you don't get caught up in in the hype of volatility and sell at the wrong time and buy at the wrong time and things like that so so that can be that can be interesting and while, while we're on, while we're on this kind of subject you kind of just mentioned briefly like 2008 what with the banks and things like that you were obviously kind of you were in, in in full kind of property mode in in two thousand and eight, having kind of run, been in the family investment company since two thousand, started your own consultancy business. How how was that recession different to kind of the period that we're in now, in in your view?
0: Yeah, I mean we had the same problems. We had the same kind of questions around, you know, you catching a falling knife and and that sort of stuff. And and we bought a number of buildings going into that recession, which the majority of which actually worked very well actually. So. There was one that we bought that I probably wouldn't have bought it now if, I, if I'd yeah, have the time again. Yep. And that was probably a bit overpriced. I, I pushed the appraise a bit too hard to get it to buy it. We paid half the price the previous owner that they paid for it. So they paid 1.6, we paid like 700 grand for it or something. So it felt like a good deal because it was less than half of what they paid, but it was still too much. So, I mean, they they paid a lot too much. <laughs> but the so, the, so the, there's a lot of money to be made in a recession. And I think the, what we did going into that recession, so one of the buildings that we bought, we we restructured the price. We didn't chip it. We restructured it. We gave we gave a certain. So we, in effect, we'd gone in with a you know pre recession, putting a, a proposal forward. Then the credit crunch hit, and and we had that original proposal accepted. And we said, well, look, this is the new marketplace, and here you go. We'll give you a bit less, but we'll give you a, an overage if we kind of overachieve on the scheme, which which they accepted so what's sorry i sort of was saying what's similar actually rather than what's, what's different I think, I think what's different as i say is if the banks aren't in the place they were back then i think when you sit and look at what the marketplace looked like back then i think we didn't know how deep this was going to go we didn't know you know with with kind of banks going bust it's a very different marketplace from where we're at now yeah we have got high inflation we've got we've got rising interest rates, but they are historically tremendously low. And so I, I think that the, the, I think the world has changed a little bit through COVID, but I think the, the PD rights that we've now got, so, so let me kind of explain that in sort of perhaps more, more kind of grander detail. So kind of retail is in two parts in my head. There's kind of the out-of-town stuff, which is doing quite well. Yeah. And then the kind of high street stuff that's not, I think the high street will fix itself. So I think the high street, the edges of the peripheries of the high street will will go into residential and, and kind of it naturally fits that way. Yeah. And sort of that will kind of compress the the sort of center of towns. That means that the sort of the, the the prime stuff will still be worth kind of what it's currently worth. It'll take a little while to kind of to, to play out, but it it will kind of get there
1: what's the new trend for a rainy Saturday afternoon is it's no longer pubs and then coffee shops is what, what's the next thing is kind of.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it will be a smaller, it'll be a smaller kind of core compared to what it currently is. So I think the edges will kind of, will sort of put pressure on the middle and that'll kind of keep it, keep it going. I think the, the future of the office is kind of interesting, but we have got a massive housing shortage. So so the right offices will convert to resi PD rights, all that kind of good stuff that, it kind of makes all that kind of happen. I and mean, then sheds are sheds, aren't they? And I think that they're just hot at the moment. Whether that continues, I don't know. I don't know that maybe it will. I don't know. I don't know whether I feel quite confident there's much value in sheds at the moment.
1: I think that's the key, isn't it? Is there value in it? And the uh, cure for high prices is high prices and all that sort of stuff. It's you know, yeah, where so else I'm, can you invest? And,
0: yeah, oh. so so I'm I'm not sure quite about that. I think the 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 principles of the last recession still apply so i think you know kind of multiple actors on schemes is is super useful it's never been easier to do that so you know class ma class g class A, class AA, all that kind of stuff you have a bunch of pd rights make it all kind of super simple to get these consents and if you haven't got the, the pd rights you probably still get consent anyway because it's kind of the the thing that we're trying to try to achieve and so so i think i think the 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 difference now i think so in in the last recession the trying to find assets that you could add value to where you've got multiple exits where you could kind of batten the hatches down if you needed to. So if, if the residential market tanks, which I don't think it will, frankly, but because we've still not building enough houses. And I think the the, the fact that we've been through COVID means we're even more attached to our houses and even more kind of emotionally attached to having a garden and this sort of stuff means that I don't really kind of see that we haven't got enough anyway. So I don't really see it sort of tanking particularly. So, so there's never been so back in the last session. I think it was harder to find opportunities where you could add value to them, and then also have that kind of nice, neat multiple exits at the end of it. I think now it's much, much easier to do that, and and I think back then it was much harder to understand. Well, how do I scale that? How do I get more in the front end of my business compared with now? So, so I think I think that's probably what I would what I would say.
1: And, and I would imagine data's got a big part to play in that and, and the ease at which you can find things out not just mm-hmm. imbus mats but you can kind of there's a lot more information out there for for everyone really Absolutely. Um, so the, i think the barrier to entry is, is has been lowered mm-hmm. which is which is great if you're kind of on the early part of your career if you're if you're later and you're trying to kind of pick up more market share, it might work against you. But again, sure. it, it, it kind of depends. But it, it means that everyone is more adaptable, I think. So even when markets kind of change, it means that everyone has those a much better opportunity to kind of not, not completely fall over with it.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So, for one of the questions we like to ask to to everyone that comes on is what's the kindest thing that's any that anyone has ever done for you in business
0: gosh that's a good question that's a good question i haven't asked this because you sent me this to me before before the show and i've completely forgotten what i I said actually i think i think that the kindest thing anyone's ever done i think actually what's what's kind of interesting is is that in business you very rarely get a pat on the back sort of and I think you very rarely get chance to take any credit for the things you do. You know, usually it's the team that takes the credit and and then you take the the failing. When you when you make mistakes, that kind of ends up with, with you. And so I think the kindest things that I can remember when people have said, I've oh, actually you've done a good job, or kind of oh, well done, you've done well to get, in you know, that sort of stuff I think is where it's sort of it's a bit like a goodwill hunting moment, you know, it's kind of like, it's not your fault, kind of, you know, it's it's like, ooh, ooh, ooh. I think that's kind of where you where you probably sort of comes most. Well, I guess it's, it's massively
1: motivating, isn't it? And and, and makes yeah. me realise that actually I've accomplished something. Yeah, yeah. Well, well done on everything you've achieved. And you. and yeah. And look, <laughs> I, I I use Nimbus Maps, and it's and it's a a fantastic product. So I'd certainly encourage anyone listening, if you if you haven't or al- if you're not already using it, go and have a look. We'll leave a, a link in the show notes for where you can see it. And, and go and explore it and like i say it's it does make life a lot easier when you're when you're looking for sites and, and trying to analyze things so yeah that's been really really interesting to kind of get to know a bit more about you and the person and people behind nimbus maps so thanks so much for coming on the show paul and i guess if anyone wants to know a little bit more is, is the website for nimbus maps yeah sure
0: yeah www.nimbus you've scored rangers a big Try it, give us a call, have a demo. That's up. Fantastic. Thanks a so lot, Paul. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Rob. That's it.